Hello, and welcome to another episode of MetaViews, where we look at the intersection of technology, power, and society. Uh, today, we're really coming out of a twofold agenda. My frustration with really the banal and stereotypical, and I would argue rigid way in which we approach technology and technology policy. But I've also been really wanting to have a chat with Paris Marks, who's someone who I'm uh, really interested in the work they do. Uh, they produce and host a fantastic podcast called Tech Won't Save Us, which really does a thorough job of uh, addressing what I would call the Californian ideology, but uh, really looking at the ideology of technology as a whole and kind of coming at it from a multidisciplinary perspective. Now, uh, Paris, one of the mandates that we have uh, here at MetaViews is to look at policy. And, and we tend to take a big picture view of policy. And while we certainly lean towards technology policy, we covered the whole gamut. Uh, our last episode two days ago was with Gavin Dew, who is a candidate for the BC Liberal leadership. So, you know, he's right of center. And it was, you know, a conversation really on kind of what he sees as relevant to right wing British politics, British Columbian politics, which as a lefty from Ontario was fascinating to me and offered a different perspective. But I, uh, from a technology perspective, find that there's very few radical voices. And, and, and the radical voices that do exist uh, tend to be specialized. They tend to focus on particular areas like algorithmic justice or uh, you know, uh, unionizing and uh, employees' rights. But there isn't a lot of people looking at the big picture, right? At, at what are some of the policies, or if you even want to articulate it in sort of broader uh, uh, movement language, what are the demands that society should be making uh, on the corporations, on the government, on each other in terms of what our, our responsibilities are for a society? So I offer that as a brief context that... As a disclaimer, I, I think you and I should be afforded what all MetaViews participants are, which is you're welcome to discuss and raise things that you disagree with, that you have no uh, 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 skin in the game for, but that you think are, are part of the, the big picture, part of the MetaView and part of the larger discussion. And I wanted to start by kind of asking, what are some of the insights? What are... Uh, some of the, the, the key knowledge, the, the, the key uh, building blocks, shall we say, that as part of hosting and producing Tech Won't Save Us, that are, are really leaving a lasting impression with you. Sort of when you go through the research, when you talk to people and you start thinking about what a, a radical vision or even a radical critique of the technology world as we know it is. Yeah, um... You know, firstly, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm excited to be chatting with you today and to join you. Um, you know, the the show turned a year old um, last month. And so I've been having these conversations. Uh, episode 60 came out today. So, you know, I've had conversations with a lot of people on a lot of different topics, um, considering like radical perspectives on technology. And I think that has given me some insight that I never had before, right, about a, a whole range of different topics. And so I would say that some of the ones that really stood out to me um, as I was doing more of these interviews and learning more about tech and, and tech policy and, you know, the, the important things that we should be considering about the role that tech plays in our societies. Um, I think the first one is the supply chains, right? I think we focus a lot on you know, how tech works in our everyday lives, you know, how our phone works, how we use these social media platforms, things like that. But I think that there's not enough attention paid to where these products come from. Um, you know, the, the ways that they are produced in factories, you know, a lot of those are in China, but increasingly they're in Brazil, they're in India, they're in Vietnam, they're in other countries around the world as well. And often, you know, labor practices, environmental standards, are not very high, um, and you know there's more and more research being done, and and these these workers themselves are speaking out more and more about their experiences and letting us know that they are not being treated in a way that I think we would expect that people should be treated, and that you know the the areas around their factories and whatnot are being 
despoiled in a way that we wouldn't want, especially when these technology products are increasingly trying to sell us this vision that they're key to like a green future or whatever, right? And then of course that can be extended further to mining and the dirty mining that's happening in South America, in Africa, in Asia, in other parts of the world, increasingly in um, the global north as well, as we have this drive for green technologies, electric cars, things like that, right? So I think that is, you know, one of the ones that stands out most to me, and that has really influenced the research that I have been doing since then, and even before I started the podcast as well, but I've learned more um, since starting it. I think another key piece that really stands out to me is on the labor question. Um, and especially, you know, there there have been some great books that have come out in recent years. Um, Callum Kant's uh, Riding for Deliveroo, uh, Gavin Mueller's Breaking Things at Work, um, you know, other books in that vein that dig into that history of technology and its relationship to work and how technology has been used to kind of take away the power of workers to kind of de-skill work in a way so that workers have less power and less ability to push back um, through history. And I think that really helps to inform us with what's going on today when we're seeing you know, the gig platforms and the um, increasing use of algorithmic management in like Amazon warehouses and things like that, that we're really concerned about. And so instead of simply looking at, okay, what is happening now? And, and why are these things happening now? I think that historical perspective helps to show us that this isn't just brand new, um, that these things have been happening over a very long period of time, and that this is just the latest kind of evolution of these trends. And I think that's important. And I would, I would end by giving one final point, and that is to look into the history more of technology itself. And I'm doing a series this month that is looking at histories of technology in US, in France, in Chile, in the Soviet Union, um, and I've also talked to people about, about these histories in other contexts. And I think it's really insightful not just to kind of start at the 1990s or the 1980s when we're talking about the internet era, because there's a particular change that happens around that time where you know we're coming into the neoliberal period, so these kind of narratives are all being created around that time. And the tech industry, and in particular, you know, the internet industry, the computing industry that comes out of that is all being tied up in these narratives. And so we get these ideas about technology being something that um, the state shouldn't be intervening in, that should be solely in the private sector, um, which is completely counter to the history of technology. Um, and even, even like what's going on today, like the state still plays a huge role in technology and in promoting new technologies. Like when we're talking about a green transition, the state is completely entwined in all of those discussions, right? Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, it gets to kind of step one is to banish the myth of the free market. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's to eradicate the idea that innovation only happens in the private sector, yeah. when instead most innovation originates from the public sector, from either the state itself or from state-based funding and initiatives. Yeah. Right. And then the second side is, as you were saying, to leverage the potential transparency that the technology affords to look at the supply chain. And you, when you contextualize that in history, you're like, well, where where's organized labor? Where's unions? Right. Where are the protection for these workers? And, you know, we do have uh, quite a bit going on in the chat. You know, Merlitron mentioned that they personally experienced that kind of labor precarity while they were riding for Foodora and doing food delivery. And you do get a sense of how some of the research talks about how the algorithm really optimizes the human worker, right? And, and denies them almost their humanity in that kind of work. Hare LeClaren posted, I'm really struck by the parallel between consumer ignorance of the provenance of everyday tech and the similar issues around food production. Right. Which is another area that transparency may be potentially transforming in terms of educating or helping people understand where stuff comes from. And Doofus Tumish points out wonderful thoughts, but I would also call to action the research on how we use tech to help build equality with genders and building wealth with the underprivileged. And, and this speaks to me why I am particularly interested in technology policy, because 
the myths of technology is the kind of solutionism that technology will magically fix everything, which is part of the brilliance of your podcast in terms of titling it tech won't save us. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious as someone who, you know, has, who recognizes the value of the state, who recognizes the power of social policy and, and the role of public policy in terms of, of compensating for, for, or, or doing what the market cannot, you know, have there been some key policies or are there, are there areas that have come up either as part of your podcast or just part of the research you do around it that you feel either deserve more attention or, you know, deserve more support in terms of something that we should be mobilizing and rallying towards? Yeah, um, I think I would point to two things with regard to that question. And first is that um, the, the show I released today is actually on Minitel, which is this um, French, you know, computer network or not computer network, you know, um, but, you know, network that was created in the 1980s that connected people in France. You know, it took a few years to fully roll out. But this was really and, and interesting. I would, for the record, I think Go you're ahead. right in calling it a computer network. I think okay. you know, <laughs> I love the episode and I think where some people associate it with the phone network, it was still basic computing. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good point. And people were essentially like using computers and computers were, were a big part of it, right? But I think what's really fascinating in that example is how the state says like, okay, we need to modernize the phone network because the French phone network is, is really shit at the time. Um, I hope I'm allowed to say yeah, shit. By on all your means, speak for you. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so they're looking to modernize and they're like, okay, so we don't just want to improve the phone network. What can the future be here, right? And so then they set out to build this, this network that not only you know improves the the ability to make phone calls in France, but offers this whole different system on top of it. And so, you know, you don't need to go out and buy a Minitel terminal. You can do that if you want to. But the state says if you have telephone service, you can go to the post office and pick up one of these new terminals, and you can access all of these digital services um, that are available as a result, right? Um, and because the state makes those terminals free it creates the network effects that promotes the creation of new services, not only by state agencies like universities and things like that, but by private companies as well, right? To provide um, access to Le Monde, to provide access to um, Air France, you know, bookings for plane tickets, SNCF um, for train tickets, like all of these different things, chat rooms, all this stuff. And it, it existed in a way in France where it didn't really in, the United States and other countries at the time, like like the French people were connected in a way that was not common in other countries at the time. And so that was really fascinating to me to see how the state can play this role if it wants to. And it can design the network in a way like, yes, it was still not completely equal. There were still barriers to entry. You know, it was rather expensive to connect to the network because you were charged by the minute, as I understand it. Um, but they were like, you know, you don't need to go out and buy a computer or a Chromebook mm -hmm. or something like that to connect. You don't need to um, pay monthly for this additional service on top of your phone service. It's like it, 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 it's a lot more equal than to access, especially as we're having this conversation during the pandemic about unequal Internet access. And especially when we're talking about students and things like that. So I think that is really fascinating and kind of looking back as the, I was a. As I was saying, looking back at these histories, um, I think has been really informative to see the role that the state has played in the past um, in a way that I think a lot of people would think like, oh, my God, the state can't do that today um, because we've been so um, convinced by these neoliberal narratives since the 90s that the state really doesn't have a role to play in technology, at least directly. Right. And so I think the second thing I would say on that, if we're thinking about the future and the role of the state in addressing these issues that we're dealing with today. Um, I think Dan Hind um, had a really interesting proposal called the British Digital Cooperative, where he essentially sets out this idea of um, a, a digital cooperative that is, you know, owned and run by the state, but is really focused on um, focused on and managed by communities, right, by the public. And he sees it as an evolution of the BBC, which is this, you know, public broadcaster um, that, you know, I'm sure we're all aware of. Um, but right now, it's kind of controlled top down, right? Because it has this board that's appointed by the government um, that makes the decisions about how it's run. And the idea is that, you know, there are good aspects of the BBC, you know, its public role, its, its public orientation towards serving the public good. 
but there are issues with its management right now and how that works. And so the question is, how can we use the BBC and this kind of idea of this public um, entity to refocus on technology and what the future of media and things like that are going to look like? And so he sets out this idea that you create this public cooperative that not only has um, a role in promoting kind of journalism as the future, more local journalism, more investigative journalism, and providing a role for the public to have a say in that, whether that's whether how to direct funds and, and whatnot. But there's also a role in there for the creation of technology, because technology, you know, really is key to anything that we're doing right now. And so whether that is creating a public platform where the kind of publicly created content, whether that's from the BBC or this British Digital Cooperative or from museums or from universities or whatever is available. But then it's, it also has a social media function where it's not focused around engagement and turning ad revenue profits, but is trying to foster a different kind of discussion. And then on top of that, there's the idea that, okay, there are also a lot of digital services and platforms that we rely on that right now are run by private companies that are able to use that to extract rents from us. And so we can create a public version of that, whether that is payment processing, which is, I, I think, a really big problem right now. We have these private payment processes that are taking really big chunks of you know, transactions that happen, um, whether that is uh, like office suites and, and programs for that, whether that's creating apps for like ride hailing services and food delivery that is in the public interest instead of with these gig companies, like there's this whole idea that we can create this kind of way of creating technology that is in the public good, that is managed in this cooperative function, um, that does not have to be located in private companies that have very different incentives that are not oriented toward the public good, but are rather oriented around delivering shareholder value and profits. And ultimately, with the way that a lot of these tech models work right now, controlling various markets. Well, and I mean, on the one hand, I, you know, I, I have to, I feel compelled to reference a fantastic discussion that our uh, mutual friend Vasiliki Bednar and I had about a week ago around the, how the public sector could be using platforms uh, as a way to, you know, again, to your point, rather than maximize shareholder value to try to serve the needs of, of Canadians, to try to serve, you know, the needs of the public. And it also strikes me that, and, and here's where I'll, I'll dabble both in the radical and then the surreal, that it, it strikes me that we should redefine the notion of public broadcasting. That public broadcasting is a completely outdated mode. And instead, we want to look at things like literacy. We want to look at things like open source. We want to look at things like agency and participation so that in a radical sense, it's exactly as you described. It's kind of a knowledge cooperative that you know the entire uh, the uh, everyone within that jurisdiction is part of and it generates technology it it, it uh, empowers expression it teaches people how to be any kind of knowledge professional or creative professional so it's one part school and one part stage in terms of redefining a public broadcaster but i think you could go further and the surrealist example is it's a hacker school in which you're basically teaching people how to be hackers and you're saying, go hack the planet wherever you see authoritarianism, wherever you see, you know, oppression, wherever you see unjust authority, fuck that shit up. And, you know, that to me would be a very revolutionary way of transforming public broadcasting into to something that sort of uh, embodied the ideals of the revolution or embodied the ideals of of making society a better place. But, you know, your first comment also reminded me of Jeremy Corbyn, what the press, British press called broadband communism, which I embraced because, you know, the <laughs> if if that makes people think, wow, communism means free, unlimited Internet. OK, sign me up. That sounds like a good policy. Right. This is why I feel there's an opportunity to come up with a new vision of the relationship between technology and society that's human centric. That's that's rooted in class and that's rooted in a larger notion of community empowerment and 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 user agency. Um, Herr Leclaren in the chat said, you know, what if we had a, a monopoly with accountability and a mandate for public good? 
you know, what do you call that again? Starts with a G. Uh, Goodopoly, uh, Merlatron argued. But <laughs> let, let me rephrase that as a question, Paris. I, you know, as someone who lives in a rural community, um, you know, I will acknowledge that Amazon has definitely, where pre-pandemic, I was as hesitant as possible to give Amazon my money. Uh, Amazon has certainly gobbled up a growing part of the, the, the things that I need as, as part of our our lives here. And while, you know, Twitch is owned by Amazon, so we are dedicated to uh, anti-Amazon content. We've done a lot of coverage around the unionizing efforts and some of the broader antitrust measures. Uh, what are your thoughts around nationalizing Amazon, right? Could Amazon be turned into a distributed workers co-op in which rather than be subject to oppressive algorithms, you know, warehouse workers have a more agency and freedom and can leverage automation for their own benefit? And we wouldn't feel so guilty. We'd pay more for our prime membership. We'd pay more for the stuff we get. But we'd be contributing to a, a, a much larger socially just organization. Am I being ludicrous and thinking that this is a viable policy? What are your thoughts on that scenario? Maybe we would say free prime for everyone. And that would be right. everyone on board, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I, when the pandemic started, I actually wrote an article about, you know, why we should nationalize Amazon to um, kind of ensure that everyone is properly provided for during the pandemic while a lot of people at home, you know, recognizing that there would still be people who would have to, um, you know, fulfill that stuff and, and deliver that stuff, of course. Um, I, I feel like I have often been unsure about the answer to that question in terms of should we nationalize or or, or something else, right? Uh, in the sense that these companies already exist and they have been built with certain ideas in mind, right? So there's this infrastructure that's already created that um, has been driven by certain incentives and goals. And so then my question is, can we seize that and reorient it toward the public good or have these values already been so embedded in the technologies and the infrastructures that have been created that that becomes more difficult to achieve and we have the risk of continuing to um you know uh, recreate these problems in the future because we're just seizing this pre-existing entity that has uh, that is constructed in this way mm -hmm. um and i would say i'm still open on that question and i think it probably it probably differs um with like different companies that we're talking about like when we talk about nationalizing facebook or something i'm probably less inclined to say that's a good idea and more inclined to say that we should create a public platform that would challenge face facebook and that would have different um values embedded in it that that is designed around different values um so I, I think on that question i would probably say no i think well on the question of amazon i think i'm more open to say that i would be uh that i would consider nationalization and obviously that's a different that's a difficult question because amazon is um an international company a global company so then what does that mean like is the united states government then controlling like amazon canada i don't like that idea either right um and so what I propose is that I think Amazon is in some ways uh, serves similar functions to a post office, right? In the sense of the fulfillment and, and all that stuff. Obviously it has things that go beyond a post office. I get that. Um, but I think it, it would be interesting to consider what it would look like to nationalize an Amazon, to integrate its various parts into the postal networks of the companies or of the countries, sorry where Amazon currently exists and to think about how those existing infrastructures can be redeployed toward the public good. Like, you know, obviously I think there's certain value to e-commerce and to shopping online and to receiving those things um, easily. But then I think the question is like, when we're seeing the development of e-commerce right now, is this really being done in a way that is positive for our communities and I, you know, I guess for the economy, though, I guess I don't think so much about that because I'm like, I think a, 
a socialist economy would look very different than what we have right now. But in the sense that um, I think that e-commerce right now, as Amazon is setting out to do, is setting out to capture a lot of the you know transactions that are happening. And so we face this issue where you know it's it's possible that other other companies like the vibrancy of of downtowns of shopping districts are being eroded because so much is moving over to amazon and i think that's a nuanced question because i think there's some things that are bad that we shouldn't want anyway so like if walmarts are going away is that really a problem probably not um but i think there's a bigger question in there and and we and by thinking about it in the sense of not just like what's best for profit but what's best for the public good we can talk about how should commerce actually be arranged how should um these these platforms really be working in order to create the kind of society that we want and so i think that there are many different pieces of amazon that could be reoriented toward the public good whether that's the fulfillment section you know they have um a piece around um pharmaceuticals that they've been growing over recent years i think that could easily be redeployed toward a public good toward a public pharma program toward providing seniors with um, their pharmaceuticals really easily like that's really positive i think even when we think about like amazon prime and what's happening there like how can we talk about um a, a platform a media platform that has the public in mind when we're talking about creating media and what does that look like like i think that there are a lot of a lot of ways that we can reconsider how these things work and the thing that i'm really interested in and i think it was in your question and i'm going to stop talking soon because i know i've been talking for a long time um but is that right now so many of these technologies are developed for profit right mm -hmm. the the kind of way that they're designed the way that we think about them is how does this work in a capitalist lens mm -hmm. and what i try to do on the podcast is think about like you know if we were thinking about technology through a different kind of lens. How do we improve quality of life? How do we enhance the public good? What would that technology look like? Because I think it would look very different from the technology that we're developing right now. I don't think that technology develops in a linear fashion where we're always on the same trajectory um, and we're always going to get these kind of technologies because this is just the way that things happen, blah, blah, blah. I think that you know, depending on the values that go into creating those technologies, that tech is going to look very different and do very different things. Mm -hmm. And sorry, and, I'll <laughs> give the floor well, back and, to you. And you raised a bunch of interesting issues, one of which I, I want to put on, on, a, on a side, but come back to before we end today. And that's the issue of jurisdiction, right? Yeah. Of like United States and Canada, given that we're in a kind of multi and trans jurisdictional kind of policy environment when we talk about technology. But I think your point about Amazon versus Facebook is the difference between the kind of tangible versus the intangible and that Amazon is very tangible for people's lives. And Herr LeClaren points out, you know, don't forget that Amazon is a lifeline to disabled folks who can't shop in shittily inaccessible bricks and mortar businesses. Absolutely. So I think that illustrates your point of there are elements to the Amazon labyrinth that can be repurposed for good. But I think your point about Facebook as an example of a company that arguably not only cannot be repurposed for good, but we don't need to bother, right? Like there are a lot of companies where open source could just completely cultural familiarity to people who like and appreciate the interface they got on Facebook but remove the predatory privacy invasions and remove the kind of tyrannical governance that Facebook groups and the rest of the platform has. So that leads to a kind of two-part question. You know, to what extent would, and, and this is me kind of backing off the nationalization and, and kind of coming to your point about, in some cases, we're dealing with systems that have been built with really flawed logic. And, and yet a lot of people still see value in them. So in shutting them down, you, you hit the Streisand effect. You, you just make them sexier. And I think an, a different public policy is to foster alternatives, is just like with smoking, to create restrictions and disincentives that encourage people to find other vices. So I, I use that as a context to frame this in twofold. 
what role do you think that open source and and here i'm flirting with the idea of mandated open source right what role does uh, potentially mandated open source play in countering both the entrenched logic and the kind of uh for lack of a better word the virus of venture capital that aggressively seeks to recreate these models and will do so post jurisdictionally if they can right peter thiel does not give a fuck about the nation state <laughs> and he will pursue his power and wealth by all means necessary so he is does, getting more interested in the u.s state though becoming more of a nationalist so <laughs> due to convenience only because yeah. steve bannon has shown him the light but to what extent does mandated open source play a potential role and second uh what, where does algorithmic transparency fall in all this? So I, I, I want to hear your open source thoughts and I'd love to hear you pivot that to the algorithmic transparency because it's a sibling of kind of mandated open source. And a big shout out to our friend Vasiliki who has just arrived late, uh, but always welcome. So again, thoughts awesome. on, <laughs> uh, uh, on, on whether open source is, is part of our arsenal or whether it's a misnomer, whether it is, you know, something that we're placing hope in perhaps for the wrong reasons. Yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think I would, I think I would preface my answer by saying this, um, you know, these things are not static. They're constantly evolving, right? We, we constantly see that, you know, Facebook has changed over time. Twitter has changed over time. All of these platforms are changing. New platforms are emerging. It's more difficult to get a new platform going now because these, these dominant platforms have um, you know, so have so much control over what we're doing online. Um, but I think I would, I would point out that I think we're in the midst of a transformation right now from this kind of open platform that is often reliant on advertising model to something else. Um, you know, we're seeing increasingly that these social media platforms are building in ways for um, subscribers to give money to creators or tweeters or whatever you want to call it, right? And so I think that there's something happening there, especially when we see that um, Apple is bringing in restrictive policies around ad tracking that is going to affect um, ad revenue and things like that. So there's a there's a transformation happening. I don't know if that's also somehow connected to um, crypto and things that are happening there. There's an argument that, you know, there's a Web 3.0 that's coming that's connected to crypto and microtransactions and all this stuff. So that's to say that these things are not static, these things are already changing. And so the question should be, is this change in the public good? Is this change serving us? Or is this change serving, you know, someone else's um, goals and, and someone else's bottom line, I guess? Um, and, and how should we think about that? So to your question, I think there is probably a role for open source. Um, you know, but when we're having these conversations, the state is always right at the center of it. Because if the state is not intervening to do something, to, to change regulations or to, you know, as you're saying, mandate open source and algorithmic transparency and things like that, then there's no change that's going to happen. And my concern right now is that these platforms are so large and have such a dominant position that simply saying, you know, that simply mandating open source, that simply, um, you know, and not say it's just simply, but you know, and, and to say that they need to be more transparent about their algorithms, I don't know if that's enough to really take them down and to make it so that, um, you know, new platforms that are being created, new social media platforms, what have you, actually have a chance of competing with these giants. Um, and that is why, you know, and, th and that's not to say that I don't think that people should be experimenting and trying different things and, and whatnot. Like, I think that's really exciting. Um, to see those things happening, to pe see people developing new ideas, to see people experimenting with different features and, and how different things could work. I think that's really interesting. But if it comes to competing with these massive monopolies right now, that's why I think that there needs to be a state role because they're already so powerful, unless the state is also at the same time really bringing in measures that is going to like tear these companies apart and whatnot. But even then, like if we're talking about like an antitrust case against Facebook, and we're talking about peeling Facebook off from Instagram and WhatsApp, like, you know, Facebook is still huge in that case. Um, Facebook still has all the network effects that are bringing people into this platform. And so I don't think that 
I, I don't think that's easy to challenge at this point unless there is some sort of, you know, state involvement or some sort of public um, cooperative or whatnot that is that actually has the power to be able to take on this kind of entrenched monopoly. Well, and, and interestingly enough, I, I was going to bring this up when you brought up the Minitel example earlier, that the French government is taking an interesting approach to digital policy in that they've created an arm's length think tank in, in the usual kind of, you know, French savoir faire. But it, it strikes me that we need that kind of expertise, that that government needs to develop that sort of a proficiency, literacy. It's interesting to see both Tim Wu and Lena Khan become part of the Biden administration. Granted, it sets expectations high, so I know I will be disappointed. <laughs> but, you know, Vass points out that we need to modernize competition policy in Canada, which our friend Robin is certainly active, along with Vass and others, in trying to do. And Vass for later asks, can anyone explain why PC Financial wants her to buy a mobile phone from their store, which I think is a very interesting example while I take a little sip of my PC soda. <laughs> and we point out more that... Often it's I'll, I'll say. Yeah. Yes, but the correlation between culture and monopoly and commerce is so intertwined, right? That, you know, I, I do want to uh, touch upon the antitrust, but before we do, I want to sort of come back to this notion of jurisdiction, because I think you sort of hit on it, that there is a role for the state and there is a role uh, for the state as the advocate for the public and the public interest, especially given the growing power of the digital platforms. And I also anticipate other types of uh, non-state power, private sector power that we are going to see challenges from. But to what extent is the nation state the necessary or appropriate jurisdiction? And I say this because Canada right now is sure fucking up when it comes to tech policy. Like C10 is a total shit show. <laughs> C11, the privacy bill is being denounced by the acting privacy commissioner. And it very much looks as if Canada is just reading Australia's playbook rather than coming up with kind of their own approach. Is there a role for multinational, multilateral uh, policy deliberation, policy debate? You know, is this a UN thing? Is this a WTO thing? Is there a need for a new, uh, you know, non-aligned people's internet, uh, right? Because there, there's a non-US internet organization, but they're the group in favor of national sovereignty. And and, and a kind of, uh, I hate saying the word balkanized internet, but that's how the media describes it. So I'm, I'm curious, how does this issue of jurisdiction and technology kind of uh, play the role of the fly in the ointment of the state's ability to counter or regulate or neutralize the, the power of big tech? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of points in there. Um, you know, I, I think, first of all, I would say, that on the the existing issues in Canada, I think I'm very critical of um, what happened in Australia, and I would not like to see the Canadian government follow that model with you know the paying the news, um, having the tech companies pay the news companies. You know, I don't like that. Um, I think that you know there are probably issues with C10. Um, in general, though, I I don't actually buy a lot of the um, criticisms that are. I think that there are criticisms to be made of it. Um, but I think that I do actually see a role for the government in regulating user-generated content and um, these platforms and stuff like that. I think that there's an argument that could be made that C10 and, and is not the right way to do it. But I was going to say, let's pause on that, because I feel the same way. Like, the okay. core <laughs> sentiment behind C10, I'm like, fuck yeah, do I want influencers to be regulated? Of course yeah. I do! <laughs> but... I don't think that I think the government is not only not achieving that, I think they're setting that policy goal back, like so yeah. far back <laughs> that they're killing. Like, it's almost like they're deliberately sabotaging themselves because they feel the opposite politically. Yeah. Sorry. No, I, I think I think that's definitely an issue. Um, you know, I think they definitely have a really bad spokesperson for this who is really botching the job. Um, but I think that a lot of the general criticism, like as we were talking about at the beginning, 
about um, kind of this this orientation toward tech policy that has a really libertarian bent. And, you know, I would bring us right back to the 80s and 90s when we have like John Perry Barlow talking about the, the government has no role in the Internet. Like, I think that we still see the influence of these ideas today and and a lot of those kind of ideas from the states bleeding over into Canada um, that I don't often agree with. Um, and so, you know, when there's discussions about like, you know, the government shouldn't be uh, regulating algorithmic recommendation systems or the government shouldn't be regulating user generated content. I don't agree with those things. I think we can talk about what those regulations should look like. Um, but generally, I think the arguments that I'm most often seeing about C10 is that the government should not be allowed to do these things. And I completely disagree. Um, so and, and, go, and yeah, go ahead. But again, let's let's double down on that tangent. Because I think that's the challenge that's presented before us as, as two mm -hmm. people who would share that position. And there are zero elected officials who represent us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> who, 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 and there's, as far as I can tell, while there are some members of European Parliament who very much represent this, you know, there's there's no like political movement. There's no... Right. There, there's no our, our proficiency, sophistication or nuance when it comes to technology policy, which is yeah. kind of the through line of our conversation today. Mm -hmm. So how you know, how do we change that in the public policy sense in, in, in that I, I originally kind of framed this question to you in the sense of, you know, how, how does the issue of jurisdiction uh, be wrestled with when it feels like our nation states are incompetent. So I'll modify that again and say, what is the arena for appropriate public policy so that we can counter the, the, the fear, uncertainty and doubt that currently plagues this policy area so that we can have honest debates about the role of the state and honest debates about the role of cultural regulations in the context of big tech and and we do have a couple of comments which I'll throw to, but I'll I'll give you a chance to address that first. Sure. Um, you know, I I think it's a difficult question. And I would say I think that one of the interesting things about um the, the past few years and even the the not only the tech lash, but also like the the growing kind of rivalry between the US and China is that we're finally having these discussions again about jurisdiction, about the role of the state in technology. I think that have been really absent for a long time. And I think even though I don't like to see what's happening with the US and China. I think that that is at least one positive thing that is coming of this is that we're actually having these discussions about what should the state do? How should the state act, etc. I think your point is well taken on, you know, our current nation states being incredibly incompetent on these questions. Um, and I think that's, you know, whether it's where when we're looking at Australia, what we're looking at here in Canada, um, is that I think a lot of our governments have been really um, blind to what tech companies have been doing for a long time and and just incompetent on tech policy, not wanting to um, act on it. And that that's an issue. Um, and so like, do I trust the liberal government to regulate technology? Not really, um, because I don't really agree with a lot of their politics. Um, and so that, that becomes difficult. And how we have these conversations when um, a lot of the tech policy discourse in, in Canada and many countries right now is dominated by what I would call a libertarian perspective. I think some people would disagree with that framing, but that's how I would frame it. Um, I don't it, think it becomes, anyone, I, honestly, I don't know anyone who would disagree with that framing. I, I think okay, libertarians well, I think, agree with that framing. I think, think non-libertarians agree with it. Some of the people who, who put out these ideas that I would call libertarian push back on me when I call them libertarian. Um, so that's the issue that I face, but I think they are libertarian. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think yeah, if you yeah. used language that didn't trigger their feelings, but still was the same meaning, they would agree with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just it's just the the uh, label that I put on it that they tend to disagree with, right? Yeah. Um, and so you know, you're talking about jurisdictions and things like that. And so I think when we're talking about the state level. Um, you know, in Canada, we already have this division. So different policies happen on different levels, right? Like when we're talking about regulating regulations on gig workers, which is uh, something that's going to be really huge, I think, in the next year. Um, that's obviously at the provincial level. Um, and so unfortunately, I think that's an issue because, um, you know, now we need to fight for the rights of these workers in 10 states. And I don't know how the territories work, if that's by the federal government or what. Um, but that becomes a real issue. And that's really concerning to me. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's other policies that happen on the um, national level. 
Uh, and I think that becomes really difficult because, you know, I think as far away that you get from the people, like as you move up these levels, the more disconnected it really becomes from real issues, the more abstract it gets, right? And the more mm -hmm. difficult it is to connect it with something real. I think there's interesting stuff happening in Toronto right now where people have pushed back against Sidewalk Labs initially and what Google was trying to do um, by kind of colonizing tech in the city. And now with the, I think it's called Pay It system, uh, this billing system that the Toronto government is, you know, trying to use. And, and a lot of people are pushing back on, on that and saying like, um, no, like we shouldn't be building this into our systems. I think that's really positive. And I think if we're talking about outside the nation state, um, you know, obviously there are ongoing conversations right now with the OECD and the UN around um, digital taxation, uh, multinational taxation. I think it remains to be seen what is going to come of those discussions. Initially, you know, like Canada right now has a proposal forward uh, for a digital tax that I can't remember if that starts next year or, or this year. Um, but that is a response to the fact that the United States was not willing to engage in these discussions on taxing multinationals. And now mm -hmm. the Biden administration says it's willing to engage in those discussions. But at the same time, what I'm initially reading is that they are also changing the framework of what was being discussed. So it would only apply to like the top hundred companies. And like, it's, it sounds, it's sounding really terrible in the, in the same way that Biden, the Biden administration came out last week or whatever, and said, you know, we support an, an IP waiver. And then all of a sudden started building its own IP waiver. That was not really an IP waiver, right. Yeah. On, on yeah, vaccines, yeah. On, on COVID vaccines. Well, and, so, and that's yeah, where, you know, the Biden administration granted they're still in their early days, but they're, they're demonstrating incredible proficiency at, at PR. <laughs> at, at making it sound like they're, you know, like they basically appropriated all of uh, uh, Bernie's broadband initiatives uh, and made it seem as if municipal broadband was coming to the United States. But of course, it's not like we're, we're yeah. not going to see anything like that. But it's it's interesting to sort of see that language. So well, and one got... issue there is that the media is in the media in the US is desperate to give the Biden administration the benefit of doubt on anything it does, which I think is really worrying. But yeah, let's get to the comments. <laughs> Although I think that's understandable given the nightmare of the Trump administration and the ongoing nightmare of the Republican Party. I mean, yeah, I, you still I, want I, them to be critical of power though, right? You know, I, I, I would hope. I, I, I have zero illusions about journalism in general. I <laughs> see it very much as an act of propaganda. So the more transparent it is, the more I'm okay with it, paradoxically. <laughs> uh, Doofus Tumish posted, I agree, Paris Marks, on your insights on open source. It's an uphill battle, but disruptive behavior is in my wheelhouse, and I will forever bloody my forehead on the powers that be. I do bite the hand occasionally and set fire to bridges. Have a wonderful day, everyone. <laughs> Keep going, <laughs> cyberpunks. Thanks, Jesse. Doofus Tumish is a active and valued member of our community. Um, Harold McLaren pointed out, well, there hasn't been much public pressure for competence in this area either. And I think that was referring to uh, the larger policy issue. And to come back to Vass's question, can anyone explain why PC Financial wants me to buy a mobile phone from their store? <laughs> We will benefit from spillover of these antitrust cases. You can get 25,000 bonus points from the mobile shop. And so, and points out also that it's a January start for the tax on digital services. Yeah. So I, I think what's fascinating to me about our conversation so far is the high level of literacy that is required just to wade into this area. Yeah which we have to assume that most people are not necessarily going to have. Um, you know, Vass is really insistent that we answer the PC question. And I am, of course, I, I can make always satisfied. Go ahead. Yeah. Vass. <laughs> um, so I, I'm sure there's a data piece, which is what um, Vass focuses on a lot, when, especially when it comes to um, law laws. I would say that from working in um, telecom, uh, I think there's also a piece there where if you buy the phone, you know, from um, from Dominion or whatever Lobla store, whatever, I don't know what you guys call them up there in Ontario, um, but they also get a, a PC or bill, right? They also get an ongoing revenue stream if you sign up um, through PC Financial or through PC Mobile or whatever. 
so I think that would be that would be part of it. Like obviously it's a revenue stream. They don't want you to go directly to Bell. They want you to go there. But I think yeah, there's definitely um, a data piece there as well. You know, you're getting in their ecosystem. Um, you know, I'm sure Vass has other insights on this as well. But well, that's just one I, thing I would. Do I it. think we're also missing out on the obvious, which is just the relationship. Yeah, right? they want to maintain the relationship. They value that relationship. If you are getting your phone service through them. I think both from a branding perspective, but also from a retention perspective, they see value in that. And and Vass, as you've been writing about, you know, the Loblaws uh, Kiritsu wants to be all things for all people. And, you know, th as this Vass is, has said, it's Canada's Amazon, right? Yes, this is this is just <laughs> I one, think Vass said that at least <laughs> one part of it. Um but I, I think, you know, there's a larger question here, which I, I, I think the Loblaws, Vass is writing about Loblaws kind of illustrates that for people, I mean, on the one hand, there's policy wonks, you know, and then there's us. We're a subset of policy wonks mm -hmm. because we're not only critical policy wonks, which unfortunately are not in as great number as I would like, but we're interested in the technology space from uh, an anti-orthodoxy, right? We're not interested in it from the California ideology. We're interested in it from a critical, critical thinking perspective. Yeah. And so I'm not that, interested in the valuations of these companies and all the money that they're making, like you know. <laughs> well, I am in the looting well, sense yeah, of knowing where to get the money. Thing. Yeah. But yes, agreed, agreed. Yeah. So you know what interests me, but you know, in 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 a way, I'm trying to wrap this discussion up. What interests me is narrative and propaganda, right? Like the, the right has won the propaganda wars of the last few decades because yeah. their stories and their spin have been accessible and effective. And that's not to say that the left has lost. I remember, you know, pre 9-11, the anti-globalization movement had fantastic spin and fantastic stories and, and major inroads were being made. Um, and I feel right now the tech clash is doing the same thing, that it is producing narratives and, and compelling stories that are getting people to care about workers, to getting people to care about the environmental cost of our technology. So I feel that the seeds are there. But I want to get your perspective on, on uh, one story, and, and I suspect you're going to be critical of it, and then another, which I also suspect you're going to be critical of, because I feel that in finding a solution or finding a response to these critiques, we've got a piece of a good story or a good narrative or good propaganda for the policies we've been discussing today. So the, the first is the basic income, right? That mm -hmm. you often hear the basic income or the guaranteed annual income as kind of the, the go-to for tech policy, right? It's Andrew Yang's kind of whipping horse. It's, you know, a, and, and our, I assume you, you are uh, no Dimitri Kleiner. Our fellow traveler, Dimitri Kleiner, has been very critical of this concept, as have you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm curious very briefly sort of what your critique is of the basic income and, and what is the follow-up? What is the counter? What is the equivalent that is just as easy for people to digest and at the same time uh, can be just as populist or just as accessible when it comes to, to articulating our part of the political spectrum when it comes to advancing these issues? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And to me, I really see um, the basic income as kind of the extension of a neoliberal society, right? It's, it's a policy that is in response to this notion that everything should be in the market and that we just need more money so we can participate in the market and buy our services in the market and whatnot, right? And obviously I don't uh, agree with that. That's not kind of the world that I wanna see. That's not the future that I wanna be fighting for. Um, and so I think one of my biggest criticisms of the basic income is that it, it doesn't properly assess power relations in the sense that if we are going to get a basic income, that is going to require a large expropriation of profits and, and whatnot from capital, right? To, to be redistributed to workers, the public, the poor, whatever. There's going to be a pushback against that. Um, and in order to actually get a basic income policy passed, that is going to make any kind of difference to regular people's lives. Um, that is going to take 
organize power in order to achieve that if it gets anywhere close to actually passing in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and so my argument then would be, if we need to build that power, um, then we should use it for something better that is going to produce better you know, benefits towards society. We know that when we purchase things through the market, they're often more expensive when they're provided in an individualized way. And so when we provide things in a collective way, it's often less expensive because we're kind of pooling our purchasing power. You know, it's like with the healthcare system. If we were all buying individual health insurance, it would cost us a lot more than our public healthcare system right now costs. I mean, you're kind of arguing indirectly that Costco is helping people understand the power of collectivization. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's like, uh, what's that book? uh, The People's Republic of Walmart, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. The (laughs) the idea that we should kind of take over Walmart and it can plan the economy. but I, I think my counter to basic income, obviously, I think that there are other criticisms that can be made of it. I think if we look at what and- Andrew Yang is doing, I think that's like he's like one of the best examples of how this is all like a con, um, you know, and obviously there are really good people who support basic income. I'm not saying they're all bad people. I just disagree. Yeah. Um, and so my response would be that I think that instead of looking to create a basic income where we spend all of this money on giving people what a thousand, two thousand dollars a month, whatever. Um, which would cost a small fortune or not even a small fortune, like a mega fortune. Like yeah. it's a huge percentage of the budget. Um, if you try to do that, um, what we should instead be doing is funneling as much of that money as possible into improving public services. Yeah. So improve our healthcare system, improve our education system, imp- uh, you know, improve childcare, um, improve public transit, make it free, make it way more accessible. Uh, massively expand the construction of public housing so people are not paying these outrageous rents that people are paying today. Facilitate the um, distribution of food to people who don't have it, who have trouble affording it. Create community food kitchens where people can go get food. Like there are all these ways that the public sector could be expanded to provide for people. And so I think that would be a much better way than, you know, basic income. So that's a great lead up to the next question in that um, I assume that you're familiar with this book, Fully Automated Luxury <laughs> Communism, yeah, right? yeah. which is sort of the extension of that. It's saying, you know, technology yeah. could be used to, you know, actually create the kind of effective distribution of resources. Now, of course, the easy critique of that book is its tech solutionism, right? And it's based on a false (laughs) false conception of AI that does not exist and that will never exist. But the reason I bring it up is it is a compelling story. Right. And as a kind of fiction, it does kind of make people realize, well, what if technology could take care of all that shit and we could all have a life of leisure. Right. And we could all do whatever we want. While, again, we both, I think, agree on the kind of uh, delusional nature that that book is fiction, not reality. Is there value in that trope? Is there value not in the solutionism, not in the AI is going to become conscious bullshit, but in the, to what you said a few times in our conversation today, that there is a way to reorient technology for social good. What are the kinds of stories? What are the kinds of not utopian, but visions that, you know, we could be promoting and that we could be sort of, you know, uh, seeding into people's minds as motivation to champion these kinds of policies. And, and uh, you know, as Vass was kind of teasing, you know, maybe there's a need for a new political party that, you know, articulates these types of policies because they're not currently, you know, represented in the Canadian political discourse. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that on fully automated luxury communism, um, I've written a few articles about it, and I, I am very critical of it. And I think that my main concern is is similar to what you said, like it's the techno solutionism that is embedded within the book. And I feel that it promotes this idea that, you know, we don't need to do this kind of collective organization to have these these ideas about what our future should be because technology will allow us to evade those kind of difficult questions about distribution and things like that right and i think that that's false because i don't think that the technologies are really going to play out in the way that aaron bastani presents them in the book and that we hear 
people like Elon Musk and these tech capitalists promoting these technologies as well. And so I think that's I think it's really concerning then to to convince people or or to have people believe that we're going to have this left project that is built on the need for technologies to um, achieve a certain thing before we can you know accurately carry out this kind of future where everything is automated, we can live like billionaires, blah, 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 like like Bastani describes in the book. And so I think that's really concerning. Um, and so I, I feel like that's misleading people. And I, I don't want to sell people like a false vision of the future, a false narrative for them to believe in, right? Um, I think that a really good kind of counter to this book was Aaron Beninov's Automation in the Future of Work, um, which goes into the arguments that were made about automation that are are embedded in Bassani's book as well. Um, one of the weird things I found about um, uh, fully automated luxury communism is that, you know, back around 2015, 16, we were having this discussion about how automation was going to automate all these jobs and was going to take over all of our jobs. By 2000, I think it's 19 when Bassani's book comes out, we've already had a lot of reporting on how that's not happening and how those things were really overstated. Mm-hmm. And into Bistani's book. It still uses these arguments that feel outdated. Like like a few years ago, it would have made sense, but now it's like, this doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. And so Aaron Beninov's book kind of goes into what has been proposed about automation and looks at how automation is actually being carried out um, and sees that it's actually kind of, um, you know, reducing the quality of work, the quality of labor, the quality of jobs, making it really difficult for people to find work, all these sorts of things, right? Um, it's not eliminating jobs. It's just it's just making them harder to find and reducing their quality. Um, so we can't have the kind of good lives that we had before. And in part, that's uh, because of the transition from an industrial economy to a post-industrial economy. Um, I, and so... No, I'll let you finish your point. Go ahead. Okay. And so what, what Beninov argues is that Yes, technologies will play a role in whatever future we envision, right? But at the core should not be the technologies, but at the core should be what kind of society do we actually want to have, right? What kind of communities do we want to build? And and how would those things serve our goals? Like what, what do we want this to look like if we could imagine a society that really worked for us? Have, you know, would we want to be working 40 hours a week and have all of these, um, you know, have all these capitalist systems in place where we're always concerned about money and how much we're being paid and blah, blah, blah. Um, or would we design production, distribution, and things like that in a different way? And we can then build the technologies to, you know, to create that future, but the future is not dependent on technologies reaching a certain level. And we recognize that, yeah, we're still going to have to do some work at times. Um, you know, everything is not going to be like, fully uh, abundant, you know, we're not going to live like billionaires, but we can still live really good lives. We can still have a lot more free time. We can still live in a very different way than we do today that, you know, is, is based on kind of enhancing um, our lives, the quality of our lives, our social connections to well. Um, and we can use technology to help us with that, but that future is not dependent on technology. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I really, we've gone way past time. So I, I do have want, we? <laughs> want to end, oh. <laughs> but I have to ask one follow-up to that, which I have, sure. I ha- we haven't touched upon this whole discussion, which is the role of organized labor, right? And, yeah. and in particular, institutionalized organized labor in terms of unions. Because for yeah. me, that's the other kind of disappointment here, right? Yeah. That in my lifetime, the same way that left-wing political parties have been kind of slow to recognize the threat of big tech and to articulate an alternative kind of tech policy, I also kind of feel let down by a lot of large unions. That is changing. I think we are starting to see many unions wake up to the at least organizing opportunities that exist in terms of the tech sector. So very briefly, what role do you see or do you hope to see uh, in, in terms, especially following up your last answer, a moving forward in terms of the role that unions can play both in automation in our society, but also in terms of, you know, helping protect working people. Yeah. I think, I think it's a really good question. And I think it's a warranted question. I think for a long time there were, and, and this still continues to this day, there are a lot of unions that are more focused on the short term that are more focused on, um, 
you know, what's good for their workers right now. And honestly, I think that there are a lot of unions that have kind of collaborated as companies have cut wages, have cut workers, um, and have not effectively challenged that, right? Um, and, you know, in part, I think that that's because they were also dealing with a state that really didn't care about workers at all, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's another challenge there. But as you say, I think we are starting to see a shift again within organized labor, um, within certain unions. Um, like, you know, we have CUPW that's working with, I think they're working with the food, food couriers and UFCW, I think, is working with Uber drivers. Um, maybe, maybe that's reversed. Um, you know, whereas uh, there was a report in the Toronto Star recently that Unifor has been talking to Uber about, you know, having um, having Uber workers unionized, but not actually considered employees. And I think mm-hmm. that's an issue, right? That's mm-hmm. like giving in to what they want. And so I think that definitely there's a role for organized labor. We're going to need that. Um, but I think that the orientation of a lot of unions and union leadership is probably going to have to change um, to have a more long-term view and a more critical view on these technologies and not just give in to um, what these companies want. And I think that's a difficult question. I'm not an expert on organized union or, or organized labor unions or anything like that. Um, so I can't say too much about it, but I think it's key. I think we're seeing positive shifts in that direction, but I think that we definitely need to see more. Um, and hopefully we will see that as we're seeing more and more workers um, organizing, looking at forming unions. Um, yeah, and hopefully positive things come to that. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, we, we do have to acknowledge that for our lifetime, certainly, the state has been very hostile against yeah. unions and hostile against any collective actions that could quote-unquote inconvenience people, which is the yeah. whole fucking point of collective action. Well, so, they legislated the port workers back to work the other day, right? They right. weren't even on strike for a day. It yeah, was like, so no, I... No. I, I, you know, we, we should afford them that, but still, when it comes yeah. to this kind of area, I do feel that there, there's an opportunity here for them to step up and, and an opportunity for them to play a greater role. Uh, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. I, I very much appreciate uh, your time and your.